0: Matthew 19, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. Um, Let's begin. Father, Lord, we are here to offer ourselves to you. Um, Lord, we are always encouraged by the fact that we know we have a living sacrifice to give you. We have nothing. Uh, in our lives that we can really honestly give you. Everything we have and possess uh, is yours. It is yours. We don't say it just as a matter of fact, Lord. We say it with a heart of worship, that it is yours, that we lovingly and willfully give you all of us, every part of us, Lord, we ask that You would fill us. That You would give us Your Spirit. Lord, the thing we long for most is You. The relationship we have with You, Lord, is more valuable to us than anything else. We don't want anything in this world if we could not have You. Lord, as Moses said when he was leading the people through the wilderness, he confessed that if your presence did not go with him, he would not want to leave even the most arid and dry land. Now, Father, around us is surrounded by blessings that we can barely count, and fridges full of food and water that is clean and sweet, but Father, we know that psalmist you said there is a deer who pants for streams of living water. And everything around us, Lord, is dying. And we're not happy with that, Lord. We're not content. We want perfection. We want righteousness, honor, and immortality. And you have promised us, Lord, that we will be satisfied. That as we purify our hearts, we will see God. That as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will drink righteousness and be satisfied. That we long for life, and You have offered us a spring of living water from which we will never die. That You have given us Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord Jesus, we confess You to be more precious to us than the greatest gem, than the greatest treasure, than the greatest wealth we could ever acquire in this life. That we would lose all this world and our very own souls if we could have You. For You sustain us and hold us by Your hand. You are our joy. Lord, You are the reason we can have joy and be full of gladness in this life. We know that there is nothing here for us apart from You. Father, we confess our hearts to You, that we have been bent toward other things. Lord, we ask now by Your grace as a church that You would bring us to center, bring us to focus on Christ. That we would love You with a greater magnitude that our hearts in previous capacities could not contain. That You would grow us and fill us to our bellies, Lord. That we would be full of God. That we would be holy. That we would be like prophets walking the earth. Who speak the wisdom of the Gospel. Who live in the law of love. Your Lord, transform our souls. Give us capacities for heaven Hear us when we pray. That every prayer that comes from this church would be heard in the righteous name of Christ. That we would see light overtake darkness in our own hearts or families, of course, in this wicked country. Father, that You would pour out a revival upon us, Lord. That You would make us righteous. That You would expose the evil and the wickedness of our hearts And of course, the wickedness of this perverse nation that we happen to live. Father, would we please be a humble people that love You with everything we have. Father, would You fill Your church, even now us, this church, with Your very presence on earth. Would You please, Lord, fill us with Your Word, even in the midst of my many weaknesses. This one request we bring, most pressing even tomorrow, as Steve has already said, the many others, Lord, we lift up Diane to you. We ask, Lord, for your protection over her surgery. With her eyes, that they would be sound. Now, Lord, please give us eyes to see Jesus Christ. For this is our only true hope. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn. We are in Matthew chapter 19. And the previous weeks, uh, we have looked at the topic uh, of forgiveness, as Jesus Christ has been teaching us about forgiveness. And people have approached me uh, after uh, these past couple sermons on forgiveness. And uh, the the feedback, it's always uh, interesting pastorally just to get feedback on various sermons or series or topics that are covered. Uh, Because it's noticeable when when there's certain um, uh, portions of scripture that uh, we're working through as a church that the Lord is leading us through. uh, I get different responses based on uh, what what we're doing. And these past couple uh, with forgiveness, people have come to me and said, listen, these have been some very uh, challenging sermons for me. They they have uh, convicted me more deeply than, uh, than normal because uh, forgiveness is just there. It's always present in our hearts, the need to do that. And so it has been hard and it is very uh, heavy to preach to the word of God and not cherry pick any verses. Uh, so in order to have a little bit of break today, we're just going to talk about divorce. Because that just is a little bit easy. <laughs> and so I don't think that's uh, outside of Jesus' um, wisdom, that he would begin by pressing us very heavily on forgiveness and then, and then we only get to talk on this very light topic of divorce. But they're so closely related. You can see, of course, why Jesus would do this. In Matthew 19, it says this. After he had instructed them that their forgiveness should be boundless, 70 times 7, Jesus walks away from Galilee. And we're told. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings. He went away from Galilee. And entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him. And he healed them there. Now the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. so then they are, they are no longer two but one, one flesh. what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This is a passage in Deuteronomy 21. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with a wife, it would be better not to marry. And Jesus said, you might be right. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so here's Jesus teaching on divorce, and it is a radical teaching, I think only matching the radical teaching he had on forgiveness, and it was shocking for those who received it, so much so that they said, maybe celibacy is a better option. And Jesus simply says, it could be. It, it literally could be. He doesn't, because they could be pushing the extreme. Like, "What do you want me to be celibate? As to say, the, for pushing Jesus to the absurdity. And then Jesus invites the absurdity and says, uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't be a bad option either. So why is this the case when we come to the reality of just talking about forgiveness, Jesus transitions into speaking about divorce. Well, I don't think it's a, uh, a, any, any small observation at all that it was Peter who asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Because just previous to this, Peter said, if someone sins against us seven times, should we forgive them seven times, even up to Seven. And Jesus, again, radical, pushes against that and says, no, not even close, seven times, 70 times, you should forgive. Now, it's, I don't think no small observation to know that most likely, as best as we know the apostles, the 12 disciples that walk with Jesus, Peter probably, we have good suggestion to think, was the oldest of them, or at least not one of the oldest of them. And we're not even sure of the others if they were maybe in their late teens or so, And maybe not even married. We know Peter was married. See, in in Matthew 8, Jesus begins some of his miracles. And he's actually in Peter's house. And he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law from being sick. So we know one thing. Peter's married. And he's particularly interested in understanding how many times I need to forgive somebody. I don't think that's a small observation. There's no relationship in your life in which you actually might be pressed to forgive someone 70 times in one day. But the nature of what marriage is, you're never closer to anyone than your spouse. And so, if if it's true that because we have been forgiven so much, that we have to forgive every time someone repents, then it would only make sense that if two believers, two Christians, are married, there's almost no biblical way out of it. Granted the preconditions that you have two Christians that are married who have been forgiven oceans of sin by Jesus Christ. And then Jesus takes that principle of forgiveness and puts it into a marriage and says... You can't get out of this. You have to forgive each other forever till death do you part. Now there are ways out. And I hope to paint the whole picture. Because if me preaching about forgiveness makes some people in the congregation a little nervous and uncomfortable, I promise you this morning the tables have turned. (laughs) And me preaching on divorce to a multitude of people with completely different histories and backgrounds and marriage experiences makes me particularly nervous that i not misrepresent this for you or you walk away hearing something different about divorce and applying it to your unique situation so here is this teaching that jesus has on divorce it's just as extreme as this teaching for forgiveness seven times 77 cain was a murderer wrath was to be upon him seven times Lamech was the next murderer. Wrath was to be upon him 77 times. Jesus is restoring nature. Grace restores nature. Grace restores nature to its root. So what Jesus is doing with forgiveness, and this is going to make all the more sense when we talk about divorce, is he's restoring the curse. That there was wrath for hatred, which is hatred is only a little bit downstream from unforgiveness, Unforgiveness leads to hatred, hatred leads to murder. Cain killed his brother. Wrath upon him seven times, it says in Genesis. Lamech kills again, wrath upon him 77 times. Jesus reverses it back and says, no, now you need to forgive 70 times seven. Well, here we have a reverse. He says, it has not been this way From the beginning. One man. One woman. One flesh. In the garden. The same thing he is doing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is not to start something new. The whole gospel. The reason it is the gospel. Is because God is taking everything that is broken and not throwing it away. Everything. This world. Every atom from here to eternity. Everything He's created. He is not going to destroy it and start over. He's going to take what it is and make it right. So from the beginning, we have to get marriage right. There is no other option. I have... I usually don't talk to people about the weeds in my yard, but when it's a sermon illustration, I will. I have this vine in the side of my yard that's persistent. It's very thick. Uh, it grows up every uh, spring. It just comes through. Every time the birds show up, the vine comes out of the ground. And I cut it. I've been cutting it for five or six years. And it's kind of just entertaining to keep watching to see what it does. Well, this year I let it grow. Because right? it grows up right next to this actually very beautiful bush uh, that springs... Um, Springs brings out uh, beautiful white uh, flowers in the summer. And so I didn't want it to really overtake the bush. So every spring I come and cut this vine down to its base root near the soil. Well, this year I let it grow and I guided it along a different path so that it actually grew around the bush. And now this beautiful vine is kind of overshadowing the bush but these beautiful white flowers are popping through and it's, it's, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. Grace is like that. See, the Lord does not come by and pull everything out by the root. Doesn't destroy this whole world, destroy your whole life, destroy your marriage or your family. Instead, what he does is he comes in, keeps you rooted, keeps you alive, keeps you grounded in this world and breathing every day. This is why it's the gospel. And then he just cuts you. Because you grew all twisted and and broken, and you regrow, and he regrafts you, and the purposes of Christ is to redirect your soul in various directions. The nature of a vine is a vine doesn't never grow straight. A vine always curves and bends. That's the nature the nature of the vine. It bends. But you see, that is us, our hearts have to bend. We have to worship. We have to love. We are not independent. Everything in our mind and psyche is moving somewhere. We are creating our own idols. We are creating our own loves. We are creating our own lusts. We are vines that bend. The Lord's work for us is to simply take that bending and to bend us toward Christ to bend us toward holiness, toward godliness. So He doesn't undo our nature. We were made to worship. We were made to love. We were made to get married. But what Jesus is doing here is restoring our nature, making all those inclinations and loves of our soul move toward light, move toward goodness. With that being said, this whole thing that Jesus is going to explain... Makes sense. See, he is moving south. He was in Galilee up in the northern part of the map, you would say. He's moving south closer to the main city of Jerusalem. We're told he's in Judea. It was in Judea that John the Baptist rebuked Herod Antipas a few chapters ago for marrying his brother's wife. And he said, it's not good for you to marry that divorced woman as you divorce your wife. And so John the Baptist was killed. He was decapitated. In that same location, the Pharisees just so happened to come to Jesus and say, now what do you think about divorce, Jesus? And so we're told they tested him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him. This test is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus responds, you see. His grace is to restore our nature down to the root. He responds with a radical response. But see, that's what a radical thing means. It means to go down to the root. He says, have you not read that he created them from the beginning? Down to the beginning when God first planted Man and woman in the garden. Male and female. Therefore, a man must leave his father and cleave, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one. That is, it's 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 a beautiful image in Scripture that we really are just like the thing God made in the garden. He planted all of these fruit trees and beautiful organic um, creatures in a beautiful garden that was confined. And very much like that, he planted humanity, not just made humanity, planted us into the soil. We came out from the soil, just like the soil just like the plants and everything else. And we were meant for one for another. That is, the nature of vines, two vines growing together, they're never just going to grow like this. It's the nature of how a vine was made, the nature of how a man and a woman are, that they should bend, they should twist, they should curve in on one another and wrap around one another, so much so that the two even become one. That we are bent in on one another by love. That's how we were made. God is going back to the garden to say the nature of the case, the reality of the situation is that one man and one woman were meant to bend to become united. So much so that if you take a vine and two that are wound and you pull them apart, they're destroyed. They're both broken. they are absolutely lost all their beauty. They are broken down to the core. That's the nature of marriage. It cannot be separated without catastrophic events. It's like taking two vines that have grown hard and twisted around each other and thinking you could separate them without breaking them. The two shall become one. And so the disciples say, okay, we understand. That was God's design initially in Genesis. But then they respond with a follow-up question. They say, then why would Moses... Command a certificate of divorce what they do is they refer to another law that comes down the road from Genesis in deuteronomy 21 uh, 24 21, uh, 24 one it says a man takes a wife and marries her he must offer her a certificate of divorce if he finds anything unfavorable in her and at the time of Jesus you had Shem- um, I'm sorry Hillel and Shammai, were two different rabbinic schools that debated about that exact verse, which they said particularly, what does finding something indecent in her, what does that mean? To me, I would say, it was for any reason. A man could divorce his wife for any reason. One would say, only for unchastity or sexual morality. And so here Jesus is responding to that debate. And he's saying, it is only... For sexual morality and chastity. The reality that he's bringing out is he points again back to the original. So Jesus responds to the first question by going back to the nature of things. Back to the garden. And then he responds to the second question by only doing the same thing. He responds and says, because of your hardness of heart. That's why Moses allows divorce. Divorce. Moses allowed divorce. But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus is not interested in saving the world with band-aids. He wants what he initially made to be good and holy and perfect. And he will get what he wants. He will create a new heaven's. And new earth. And not just into the future. But today. The spirit is alive. Jesus has rose. From the grave. And he will get godly marriages. For his name's sake. He will. And so he repoints them back. Not from the beginning. That is not my intention. The nature. Of being so corrupted. And so hard-hearted. See, like a twisted vine, our hearts are. They can never be made straight to bend along the lines of righteousness. That's why divorce is. But that's not acceptable. That's not the norm. See, the Lord wants hearts that are bent toward righteousness. To believe in Christians who are under the grace of God. That they would wind their lives up to the light of Christ and together. That there would be a unifying bond. That actually brings Jesus Christ glory. That it would never be a case to approach divorce and say, this, this is okay because there's just a way out. There's this passage in Deuteronomy 24 that says, I can just get out. No, that is only there because someone's heart is hardened. That is only there because of the previous sermons on forgiveness have not been actualized. They have not been brought out. So it's never a way out, it's a way of failure. And fine, there is failure, and there's appropriate times for divorce, but there is no need ever for two believers to accept failure, if they can. Just soften their hearts. That's the problem. Two soft hearts, two vines that can grow, and men, according to God's word, they can be bound together. It is possible. But a hard heart, A vine that is twisted in every dark place but never to the light. Yes. We all know, even in this room, the divorce still is present. Bending. What if the meaning of marriage is not to self actualize your life? What if the meaning of marriage is not to to necessarily make your life better. It's like a man goes to the gym every week, runs, lifts, sweats, goes home sore, lays in bed, and says, This gym is terrible. My back hurts. My calves hurt. My legs hurt. I'm going to end my covenant relationship with that gym. I'm going to cancel. I'm not getting any more of my money. Why why did you go to the gym in the first place? What did you think you were going to get? Why did you get married? What were you looking for? Only for an opportunity to die? To love this person? To love them sacrificially by the grace of Jesus, not looking for anything in return. Is it not true that that is exactly how the Lord has loved us? That we were sinners and we love Him only, only because, 1 John 4 says, He first loved us. To approach a marriage and say, I'm not getting anything out of it. Well, of course, you married a sinner. You're supposed to love them not looking anything for return, so that you would draw them as Christ has drawn you, that you would love them over and over and over and forgive them over and over and over so that the vines of their heart would eventually turn toward you as a vine looking for light, that you would be so warm and loving and forgiving day and day and day that eventually they would love you in return, that eventually they would want to love you. That's only how Jesus Christ has been wooing us through the gospel, all of our life. And it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. It's going to be like going to the gym. But at the end of it all, the purpose for it all is glory. That you glorify God on this earth with a person that the Lord has given you. And you made vow promises in the presence of God to say, I will love this person even if I don't even get anything out of this person because the Lord Jesus Christ surely has loved me and forgiven me. And He got nothing out of the deal. What if that was the understanding of marriage? Well, then it would all make sense. Then there would at least be a reason to know that when Jesus says forgiveness must be extended, yeah, it even means to our spouse, not just the guy that cuts you off on the street. So the only way out, as far as how Jesus points it out to his disciples, and the nine... The ninth verse, there's one exception, he says. He says, whoever divorces or puts away his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. That's the only way out. Sexual morality. And that's only because it's a matter of fact. First Corinthians 6 says, whoever binds himself sexually to another person becomes one flesh with them. So therefore, the very act of sexual morality is an accomplished fact. That means the marriage is dissolved. You have you now bound to become one flesh with another person. Therefore, there's actually a reason to divorce. Not that it's required. It could be forgiven. But at least there's a liberty to say, well, the divorce is already... The, the marriage is already gone because of the sexual act. Therefore, divorce is present. It can be finalized with papers. Other than that... Jesus is so radical, so restrictive, that he doesn't even give one more reason. But see, he's radical because he's going back to the root of marriage. He's going back to what it actually is for. The reason it's radical to us Is because we don't even know what marriage is for. It makes us happy as a byproduct. It makes us die to ourselves essentially. And if you're dying, if you have two believers dying to themselves, it's a very happy marriage. You're never gonna have a marriage where you're not dying to yourself to love someone else. But you could also have a marriage where you're dying to yourself to love someone else and be very happy about it. So he says this is the only way. And the shock. The shock of such a radical statement to them truly means that they understood what he said. If such is the case, they said, it'd be better just not to marry at all. And Jesus, of course, doesn't back up and say, oh, no, um, uh, my public relations committee was uh, on vacation. I didn't mean it exactly that way. Uh, You're misunderstanding me. I didn't mean, like, you're being really dramatic here. Um, No, he responds and says, yes, if you're considering singleness, then then you're understanding what I'm saying. It's it's that dramatic of a a commitment of love that perhaps singleness would be better. He goes on to say, this radical statement about how we uh, should not uh, ever really divorce for any reason between two believers. He says, this saying, not everyone can receive this saying. Only those to whom it has been given the idea would be either he's referring to his saying about how divorce cannot happen outside of sexual morality, or he's referring to the saying that the disciples just made, that it would be better to be single. It most likely is the case when he says, not everyone can receive this saying, only the ones to whom it has been given. He's probably referring to the previous statement where they said it would be better to be single. And Jesus responds, Yes, but not everybody can receive singleness. It's a gift that some people can just be content being single. And if you have a gift for being single, then you're gifted for that, and you can receive this saying of actually never being married and be perfectly happy and fulfilled in your life. Because right after that, he goes on to explain three ways of being single. He says you can either be a eunuch that uh, have been from birth, probably some type of genetic defect, Even in our modern application, it could be people with a particular homosexual bend in their mind. That they would be content to be single. Not that saying that's what Jesus is referring to here, but an application of that could be the case. Those who are made eunuchs by men, that is, those who were working for kings and literally were castrated because of it in the ancient world. But then thirdly, he gives this option. Those who metaphorically make themselves eunuchs. Make themselves like eunuchs. Those who are single and happy with it. And want to do it. Why? For the kingdom. They make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. They refuse marriage because of God's rule and reign over their life. And they interpreted their circumstances within and the circumstances without. And they said, this is for me. I need to do this because I have a will of God upon my life that I need to advance the kingdom this way in my singleness that frees me up from marriage and children and obligation, that's beautiful and glorious. And Jesus says, matter of fact, it's working very well for me. So these are the options. And if we left it there, it would be a travesty because that's not the full picture of divorce. There's another verse I ask the AV team to put up. I want to read this to you because it's more important instead of being perfectly thorough and having a nice theme throughout the whole sermon, uh, being rhetorical you could say, I need you to get this information. I need you to be able to read 1 Corinthians with me. Because when you can read this verse in context to what Jesus has just said in Matthew 19, you'll be able to see the full picture of divorce and remarriage. See the confession, Westminster Confession 25 says this, nothing but adultery and willful desertion, as can in no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate, is a ground for divorce. And you would say, well doesn't that seem wrong because of what we just read Jesus saying only adultery? Why is the confession saying and willful desertion? Seems like it's not one but two reasons for divorce. And the reason is because of 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul explains, he compares himself to Jesus in this verse. He says this to the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul gives two scenarios. This is the first. It is a scenario of two believers being married. If two believers cannot get along, Paul says, okay, this is the real world. Understand how it is? They can separate, but they can never be remarried. The only way forward is for them to be reconciled or to be single. But then, he says particularly, this is not his teaching, not I, but the Lord. He's echoing the verse we just read in Matthew 19. He's saying, the only way out between two believers is breaking, literally de facto, breaking the marriage by sexual union with another. Other than that, Paul was saying, this isn't my teaching. This is what the Lord has taught. Therefore, if you separate with another believer, you must remain separated or be reunited. Seventy times seven. That's the only way. Forgive, 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 and go to heaven when you die. But he says, what if you are married to a non-believer? What if you're married to a situation in which... See, the essence of forgiveness is so central to Christianity that if you cannot do this, Paul is assuming you're not a believer. Jesus didn't ask us to pray for lower taxes in the Our Father. He asked us to forgive us our debts as we forgive others. There's many prayers we could pray. But the central one is, the one that all believers must pray is, forgive me of my sins as I forgive others. And so therefore, to not be able to forgive. Paul's not even has a category for that. That's called non-believer. And so he transitions to say in 1 Corinthians 7, 12, to the rest, to those who aren't believers. This is something I am adding to the Lord's teaching because the Lord never addressed it. I not, the, uh, I, not the Lord, I say this. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." Yes, it's possible to be holy and not saved. That's why we baptize babies. They're not saved, but they surely are holy because they are inside the covenant home. Just like a husband or wife who is married to a believer is not saved, but they are inside of a home with a believer. They have the gospel exuding in their life every day, lived it every day. They are holy. They are set aside. They are unique from the world. They have an inside view of the gospel of Jesus Christ by nature of their family relationship. They're holy. But then, here is the verse. 7.15, Paul says, If unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. That's the other way out. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, your brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. You see? There is a certain reality, three principles to the gospel here in which separation it says it twice actually in the greek if he separ- if he is separating let him separate if he is distancing from you let him distance why because you are not enslaved you are not there to try to mend an impossible relationship you're not there to try there is no mechanism there is no power there is no way to fix it because there is no christ but if there is a christ then there is forgiveness 70 times 70 times 70 times 70 but if there isn't, you're not enslaved to this. Let them go. You are free because God has called you to the gospel of peace. To be at peace. See, marriage is not to be riddled with problems. It is to actually end in peace. We've been given the gospel of peace. We have an ability to forgive one another. Not to just kind of growl at each other every day and get along in life and be like, my marriage isn't that great. That's fine. But the mechanisms given to us for two believers is, it could be. It could be because you can actually forgive each other and grow in sanctity, be vines that are oriented toward holiness and toward God. So the reality is that you are able to divorce, he says, particularly with an unbeliever, because you are meant to be living at peace. So there's only two ways out. Willful desertion. Willful desertion of an unbeliever, however that might mean. And adultery by a believer. And even then it could be forgiven and the marriage restored. That is the extreme, or you say radical, but really it's the root nature of God's intention for marriage. Society rises and falls on marriage. Communities, churches, everything rests on this. If this is not strong, nothing is strong. But we know the reality that even willful desertion has to be remedied by the state, the confession says particularly, or the church. So, you see... Criminal cases, abuse, the state comes in, it's a criminal charge, the marriage is over. Long-term unforgiveness. The purpose of the church is to say, over a long period of time, there remains a pattern of unforgiveness and unrepentance in which the church can come alongside a marriage and say, after much evidence, with much wisdom, you have the right to divorce. There's no way here. Somebody is getting pronounced to be excommunicated, an unforgiving unbeliever. Because they are an unforgiving unbeliever. So if it cannot be remedied by the church or the state, then it's dissolved. Divorce remains. Because of the hardness of heart. The realist situation is. The divorce remains because of this hardness of heart. Divorce remains because of pride. And lust and abuse. Divorce remains. Because not only can the sins be forgiven. But the consequences must remain. Some of you are divorced. Whether for biblical grounds or not. It is all redeemed in Christ. The reality of our being Broken, the reality of there being tremendous sins that are transgressed in the marriage can dissolve the marriage beyond repair. But the gospel, right, this is the gospel of Jesus on this account. There is, there is a need for help to actually love your spouse. There is a place to find that. There is a place to actually have an ability to forgive your enemy. There is a grace given. To be able to have your heart bent toward godliness. Your will can change. God can bend our will like a gardener redresses a vine. And makes it bend. He will not uproot you. He will cut you. He will break you. And he will bend you to love your spouse. Therefore, no. We may not divorce. We must love. The authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that... Jesus died for this. He rose for this. His promises stand that he can do this. He can change a marriage. He can change a heart. So wherever you are, wherever you are in your situation, single, it is restored to Jesus Christ. Your singleness is for the kingdom. If you're married, you are being restored to love your spouse. He is cutting you and shaping you for that. To be wound with them. And if divorced, yes, restored. Absolutely. Because of Him being your spouse. He has married you. He has promised He would never leave you or forsake you. All our marriages have failed from time to time. But there is a marriage supper of the Lamb. Our whole redemption is based on this image. is that Jesus Christ has promised he would never leave us or forsake us. That he had made a marriage covenant with us with his own blood and life. And therefore you are married. You are bound to him and cannot be taken away. He planted a new tree. He put in a new vine. In Isaiah 11 he's called the vine of Jesse the root of Jesse, a new branch that came out of the lineage of humanity. He planted a new tree and pierced that cross into the cursed soil of this earth and cursed his own body, pierced to that tree. And from there, there is a redemption, that he is restoring nature. There is a humanity that's been pierced to the tree, a new humanity, a new nature that can be bent toward godliness. And all who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved not just for the future. They will be saved today. Their hearts will be twisted righteous. They will take on the new humanity of Jesus. And they will learn to love and forgiveness their spouse and everyone in their life so that it could be said that there is no way out but up. There is no way that Jesus will undo everything he ever planned for marriage in this world except by redemption, not destruction. It's radical. It's a radical love. The only reason that grace is there is because Jesus Christ has given it. Dear Father God, we trust that you have given sufficient grace. That it has been the case, particularly in these past three sermons, you have laid upon our conscience an obligation that is seemingly impossible if we do not take it lightly and we seriously line by line prayerfully meditate on every one of your commandments regarding forgiveness we have found ourselves to be in the midst of a very deep gospel waters that are too deep for us to tread Father we ask for your grace That you would give us a unity and love in this church that is purely alien, that is of your Holy Spirit, that is something that is not of us, that we would be full of love and mercy and grace.